the National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, Sense and Sensitivity, presented by Tim Gollins as part of the Big Ideas series of talks. Sense and Sensitivity, Technically Assisted Sensitivity Review of Digital Public Records. This is what I'm working on at Glasgow University at the moment. So, Public Records and Sensitivity Review. As we're all aware, we now operate under a 20-year rule. Now, I know the detailed ones amongst you will say, yes, yes, we're in transition, dot, 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 dot. But it's a 20-year rule for, all, for, for the purposes of this conversation. Selection happens against public criteria. Op- um, operational selection policies are made publicly available for people to see. At the moment, approximately 5%, perhaps a little less, of paper records get selected. I think more will be selected when the material goes digital. I think a higher percentage will be selected. That's the general feeling. I'm getting nods from the audience about, from people who should know these things. So I'm glad I'm all right on there. Uh, and the Acts of Parliament that govern that selection and govern the problem that I'm talking about, which is sensitivity review of the Public Records Act, Freedom of Information Act and Data Protection Act. Okay? So we're working in a legislative context here. Um, all of this assumes open transfer. Okay? The assumption is, basic assumption is that when a public record produced by a government department or public body gets to 20 years old, it comes to us and it's open. Everything else is an exception or an exemption indeed. And it turns out there are 15 exemptions under the Freedom of Information Act that apply to historical records. I counted them. It turns out it's quite difficult to actually find a list anywhere, but I did actually get one from somebody, and I did count them, and there's 15 of them. Um, now, the big issue is the cost of review. Uh, in the paper age, we kind of manage, people muddle through, but we kind of cope, or they kind of cope. In the digital age, we've got more records, and the records are harder to understand in the digital age. That's something you've got people need to get their head around. We, uh, in 2004, helped to mandate that all records would go electronic in government. And we set in place and we advise on methodologies and ways of government organisations managing their records to keep them well organised. Despite that excellent work, we know that the picture out there is not as good as we would like it to be. The reality is that out there is a large amount of fairly amorphous, fairly unmanaged blocks of material. Um, Or at least, it probably is slightly managed, it's just probably not managed in the way we might like. It's managed so that the government departments can do their work. must be, otherwise, if you see what I mean, it, it goes without saying, that they have to manage the record sufficiently well for them to work with it, for as long as they care about it or as long as the core business cares about it. Once their core business stops caring about it, however, that structure of management doesn't necessarily align with our vision of what a structure of management should look like. Now, there's a whole arm of research there that I'm not getting into about what that means and whether that should be, should be different or not be different. But what it does in practice mean, pragmatically, for sensitivity review... <coughs> is it means that for the sensitivity reviewer, it's very hard to understand when they're looking at an individual object, a digital object, 
the context in which that object sits. Now, when you, as you'll see in a minute, I've actually observed and interviewed sensitivity reviewers as they're doing their work with paper in order to understand some of the processes they go through, some of the cognitive processes they go through. And it's very clear that context... We knew this already, but it was important to get some facts behind this. It's very clear that context is critical in a decision of whether an individual object is closed or opened. It isn't usually the words in the object that drive the closure. It's very often who said it, when they said it, in which meeting they said it, and to which minister it was sent to. All of that used to be very heavily telegraphed in the old paper system through the way the files files were structured, through the titles of the files, through the ordering of the material on the files. (coughs) That stuff is absent now. So we have a challenge. How do we deal with that in the digital age and not drive up the cost and not have the volume and the difficulty substantially drive up the costs. Because if they drive up the costs, we'll get this horrible thing happen, precautionary closure. Before I go on to read this, go through these points, what do I mean by precautionary closure? Well, you only have to imagine the sequence of conversations between the government department and the the advisory council. The government department... Um, has a requirement to deliver some records in 2018 to the National Archives. They've got a million digital records to bring to the National Archives um, and they start their review at the beginning of of that year. They get about halfway through and they realise that there's this great wodge of stuff they haven't looked at yet. It's a bit amorphous. They kind of know roughly what it's about, but they also know that in amongst it is some really sensitive personal information. But there's only... A small proportion of the totality of that block is personal information. So they've actually got to look at every object to find the personal information. They're going to be highly tempted to say, this block of data is going to cost us too much to review, so we're going to close it under Section 40 and bring that to the Advisory Council. Now, the Advisory Council are good guys. Uh, Stuart's smiling. They are good guys. They will say, try again. They will push back. But they will only be able to push back so far because the advisory council are also realists and they know they can't keep pushing back. If the costs are genuinely too high, they will at the end of the day have little choice but to say, with regret, yes, okay, you can close this block of data. That's bad news. That's bad news because social and historical research will take place under a blanket. Yes, you might be able to get private access to this block of data to do some research. But nobody else will be able to challenge your conclusions if you're the privileged historian who's been given access. There's no other historian that can, re- to, can write the history of MI6 other than the guy who's written the history of MI6 because he's the only person that's seen the records. So no one can say, ah, I don't agree with your interpretation of that sequence of events because they can't check. That's the position we will be in if we're not careful. This data might not come here, because if it's, if it's considered too large or it's considered too sensitive, it will sit in government departments. Well, that's going to drive storage costs for them. 
And it's also going to have contingent liabilities that they're going to start writing into their, into their risk accounts. And they're going to say, do you know what? This stuff is just too hot for us to handle. And what? We're going to keep this for 100 years before we send it to the National Archives? And I'm a government department whose job it is to give people benefits or, or, or run, the, run, run the military. It's not my job to keep this stuff for 100 years. Forget it. We'll ditch it. We'll not select it. So it won't even come to us. And what that means, ultimately, is wrongdoers won't be held to account in the court of history, or indeed in the courts of law. So precautionary closure is a big, bad, scary thing. And as I say, it's all about the cost of review. So we need to reduce cost, we need to increase throughput, and we need to maintain or improve quality. So we want a free good, okay? We want, we want the moon on a stick. Well, we can't have the moon on a stick. We can have a research project that can try and deliver some help. Okay? So that's what I'm going to talk about now. But that's, this, is the, this is the motivation. This is why this is important, and, this is, and this, is, this is what we need to achieve. So our vision for technically assisted sensitivity review of digital, UK digital public records... The aim is that it says it on the tin, okay? Technically, means there's a computer involved. Assisted, means that computer doesn't act on its own, means there's a human there. Sensitivity review, that's all we're doing, we're not doing anything else. UK digital public records, we're not solving the world's problems, we're solving our problems. Okay. We're going to develop tools to reduce costs. We're going to develop some methods to greater efficiency. We're going to do the two together. Okay? They're going to iterate around and we're going to, we're going to de- develop the method and the tool in, in, in consort. And then we're going to show that they work. We're going to show that they work by evaluating the tools using the scientific methods you use for evaluating such things. We're going to e- evaluate the methods using the scientific tools you use to evaluate such things. And they're both going to be based on empirical evidence of what human beings really do as opposed to idealistic models or idealistic ideas of what policy would be good for them to do. That is critical if you're genuinely going to hit these three things. So, here we go, the project. The project's in two phases. We're currently in this phase, the feasibility phase. Um, We're coming to the end of the first four months. The reason it says four to twelve months is that I'm funded for 12 months. The rest of the project was funded for only four months. That's because of where we had to grab the money from. Uh, We're coming to the end of that four months. In fact, last Friday, we came formally to the end of of that first block of money for the rest of the project. Um, A week ago Friday, we managed to obtain further funding for probably a further four months of work. Um, By hook and by crook, and believe me, that's hard work. Uh, we've managed to extend that four now to nearly, probably nearly eight months uh, of, of, of work for the, for the majority of the team. Uh, but I'm still funded out for 12. Um, that's the feasibility phase. We then think we're going to need a three-year full-scale project, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, which is going to deliver in phases. It will deliver phased results every year to enable TNA and others to make decisions on investments 
to build operational tools. Because this is research, okay? This is a demonstrator. It is not an operational system. It's really important that people understand that. We can build demonstrators in a university environment. You cannot build operational systems and deploy them into real environments at scale from a university environment. The, the, it's, the stuff falls apart, basically. And that's no disrespect to the university developers, because they're developing against different targets. They're not, de- deliver, they're not developing against um, robustness, quality, and, 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 and throughput of the data system. They're developing to prove a point, to demonstrate a theoretical issue. So the, so the, the, the software looks different at detail. So <coughs> it's important we understand that. Okay. So in each of these phases, there are two separate strands. There's a method strand and a technical strand. Now, the method strand is we interview. We observe and we interview. And we interview several groups of people. The mo- some of the most important people we interview are the reviewers themselves. We ask them, how do you do a review? And they say, what do you mean? I say, how do you do a review? What do you actually do? Oh, I sit here and read these documents. Okay, which bit of the document do you look at first? Oh, oh, I look at the title. And I look at the classification. Really? Your guidance says you should ignore the classification. No, 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 I look at the classification. Why do you do that? Because the classification tells me that somebody once thought this was sensitive. Oh, well, that's interesting. So what do you do then? Well, I work out what they thought. I work out why they thought it was sensitive. Oh, okay. And then I ignore the classification and I ask myself the question, is the thing that they thought is sensitive still sensitive? So there's a sequence of logic to their thinking that helps them to make this decision. Now, some of you may have known this already. This was news to me when I interviewed some guys at the FCO and they explained this process. And it's actually inspired some of the systems that we're going to build into the computer, some of the methods that we're going to use to construct the decision-making component of that system. We're going to use exactly that idea. Spot it's classified, try and work out why the first person thought it was classified, throw away the information about the classification, and then look for the subject matter that they thought was sensitive. Because do you know what? That actually might be in a load of other documents that the other person didn't classify. So actually there's some, there's some facts there that are valuable for making, it, for making a guess about sensitivity. So that's the method. And we use that, as I say, to, define, to help us to do the technical. We're going to research and we're going to build a tool. And we're, in the feasibility phase, we're going to show that the approach is viable. Now, I hope in the next few slides to demonstrate to you that we have shown that the approach is viable and that it's worthy as cracking on. In the feasibility strand, the method strand, so we had some interviews with paper reviewers and others. We've used those interviews as inspiration for developing the classifier. Um, the classifier is a piece of software that makes a guess as to whether the thing's sensitive or not, in essence. We'll talk a bit about how it does that in a moment. We've got some really interesting insights into the development of administration practice in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. Now, I mention this to this audience in particular because some of these insights affect, do not just affect the digital record. 
they actually affect the paper record. And they will actually be affecting sensitivity reviewers who are working with records that will be hitting us next year and the year after. So I think it's quite important. We also are now getting a much better understanding of the reviewing process and it's helping us to confirm the approach and inform the way in which we do, we do the next phase of work. So, insights from the interviews. Well, I've already talked about this piece just a, a moment ago, the role of protective marking in sensitivity review. It isn't quite what you think it is. It isn't ignore it, and it isn't if it's classified, it's sensitive and therefore close it. It's much mo- there's, a, there's a lot more subtlety going on there. And we've unpacked a bit of that. I suspect as we work further, we'll unpack some more subtlety in there. This is the other piece. This is this bit about the 80s, 90s and 2000. The significance of the photocopier. Now, this was a surprise to me because when I started work, I started work in 87. The photocopier was in place. But I started working in an organisation where access to the photocopier, for very, very good reasons, was very, very strongly heavily restricted. I had to to go to a special room with my paper that I wanted photocopying. That is any piece of paper. And I had to fill in a register for how many copies I wanted of this piece of paper. And somebody else operated the photocopier in accordance with my entry in the register. And this continued for... Certainly up to about 1995, that sort of a time frame. Okay? Because at the time, this was a, this was, the photocopier was a vehicle for exfiltrating information. It was a, a way of, in an uncontrolled manner, creating copies of stuff. But in other parts of the civil service, access to the photocopier was not restricted. There was one in the corner of every office. And that meant that instead of only being able to produce five copies of a memorandum or a, me- or a minute, you could produce as many copies as you like. Why five copies? Because you could only, uh, the typing pool could only produce five copies uh, using carbon paper. So that was practically the limit on the number of copies of a me- minute that you could create, that could be sent. So administrative practice was driven by the number of copies of pieces of paper you could generate. How many people were invited to the meeting? Well, as many people as you could create copies of the piece of paper for. If you wanted a big meeting, it was a big deal because you had to produce lots of copies of the paper. You couldn't do that before the photocopier came along. Once the photocopier came along, you could. Okay? That also means that other departments are copied in. Other departments who would previously have been well, it's probably a good idea if we informed them, but we've only got five copies, so we really can't, you know, can't afford one of them to go over there. So I'll give them a phone call and just let them know, and that'll be okay. Photocopier? No, no, we'll send ten copies to them, ten copies to them, fifteen copies over there. And all of those, or some of those, not all of those, some of those will go on files. So now instead of this... So imagine a sensitive document, a document that's still sensitive today. It's now on file in the primary department. Comes up for review. The primary department looks at this and says, oh, that's still a bit dodgy. No, we better keep that closed. Oh, which, one are we gonna, which, which section are we going to pick? Oh, we'll have, oh, let's have section 27 because we're for FCO and it's, um, it's uh, international relations. But unfortunately, they sent it to biz and they sent it to treasury. And it was a big, important document and so it's on their files too. And it pops up for review. Well, the biz guy looks at it and says, well, that's all right, says what it says, can't say anything wrong with that, opens it. 
So does the Treasury guy. Now we've got a situation. A document that should be closed, because FCO understand its sensitivity, is now open, and it's sitting here. Because nobody has the time or energy to cross-check paper files to see if copies are appearing. But they do. Now, I think we've had some examples of this. Right? It will become worse in the next few years because of the photocopier. Now, what happens after the photocopier? What happens after the photocopier is instead of having a typing pool, you've got your own personal computer and your desktop printer. It was a revelation when uh, inkjet printers arrived. All of a sudden, you could, you could produce as many copies as you want from your desktop that looked nearly as good as a laser-printed laser object. Amazing. 50 dots per inch. Um, inkjet printers arrived in about 19, in, in, into my organisation about 94. Transformed the way it worked. All of a sudden, they realised there was no point in controlling access to the photocopier any longer because they had all these printers everywhere. And that was before you networked the computers. So again, all this stuff is coming out on paper. So the, the point I'm trying to get at here is that we think about this issue about sensitivity review as only being about the digital. And the big issue, one of the big issues is, is that transition to digital. But there are other overlapping transitions that are happening in, in administration over the same period that, if, that are just as impactful and will shift the way in which we have to think about sensitivity review before we even get to the digital. So we need to... Un- I, we th- I think it's important that, as an organisation, we understand those and we start thinking about them. We start thinking about them pretty quickly because they will bump into people... We, we will start bumping into them in the next few years because of the acceleration of 20-year transition. We're going to hit these things twice as fast as we would have hit, as, as they happened in real life. And they happened pretty quick in real life. Okay? So we just need to bear that in mind. And that's just from the method strand. So, what else have we done? We've built a test collection. Um, now, I can't talk about the nature of the data documents that we've used in the test collection. Some of you will be aware of them because some of you have, have, have been kind enough to volunteer and help us. But I'm not allowed to talk about the, in detail uh, the documents we've used in the test collection other than to say that they are publicly available. <coughs> so, the way that our methodology works, the methodology that we're using in Glasgow works, is you have to have some ground truth information you have to have a set of data that you know to be correct. And you then use the computer to learn from that set of data that you know to be correct to generate a model for what the data should look like, and then you run that on data that you haven't seen before. Or ideally, you run it on another bit of data that you know to be correct to see how, good it, how well it learned the model. Okay? And you go round and round that loop, tweaking the way it learns, tweaking what it's looking at, to make it better and better at spotting the thing that you want to spot. Now, normally, you're looking to spot subject matter. You're normally looking to spot topics. Is it about schools? Is it about um, finance or whatever? That's what you're normally looking for. In this case, of course, we're looking for sensitivity. Now, we're pretty sure, pretty sure, that this is the only test collection in the world, anywhere, where anyone has actually done this 
work of attempting to capture a ground truth for sensitivity, for personal data as opposed to non-personal data, and in the case of sections 27, for uh, uh, damage to international relations. Sorry, I should decode. I'm sorry, this is dreadful of me. Um, I'm now so used to thinking in sections. um, I just think section 40 is personal data, section 27 is uh, damage to international relations. So, we've got this set of records. We've got 112,000 of them. Okay, um, And we've asked a group of assessors to judge the records. We've written some guidance. We've based that guidance on the National Archives and others' published guidance. Um, and we based it on our knowledge, in the case of Section 27, our knowledge of the classified guidance. We couldn't use the classified guidance because that would have made the collection classified. So we had to write some unclassified guidance that was similar to, but not the same as, the classified guidance. That was fun. Um, uh, but we've written unclassified guidance, uh, and that has allowed our assessors to judge these unclassified records. Now, uh, who would have we used for the assessors? Well, we've actually used four people from the SCO uh, sensitivity review team who've done a fantastic job. We've also asked members of the advisory council. We've also uh, asked a number of uh, leading historic historians and academics. Uh, who, who are interested in contemporary history. Why have we done that? Because what we've realised is that by asking people to do this task, we can make it real for them. We can make them realise how horrible the problem is at the operational level. Because a lot of people don't grasp how hard this is, don't grasp how difficult it is. They can academically sort of... Yes, of course, you'll need more resources. But until you've actually had a go and tried to read these documents and tried to understand them and understand their context, you don't really realise how how nasty it is. So we've got 1849, 1850-ish records have now been judged, um, of which about 11.11, just over 11% are responsive to Section 27 and about just over 7%, nearly 8% sensitive under Section 40. Now... This bit, this is, some, this is some maths that I don't understand, okay? Um, this is a score between 0 and 1 called kappa. That's why it's got a K. It's Greek, I think. Um, <clears throat> and it's something to do with some bloke cone and some bloke flice, and it's a statistical measure of how much people agree, okay? Now, 1 is they agree perfectly, 0 is they completely disagree, as you can see, we're somewhere in the middle. Now, it turns out that in this general task, because uh, information retrieval guys do this kind of work a lot, um, in this general task of, of assessors judging records to being, uh, well, they would use relevant or not relevant, um, this is, these sort of scores are considered, quote, reasonable. They're not brilliant agreement, but they're not poor agreement. They're sort of somewhere in the middle, but they're good enough to work with. This tells us the, these statistics are good enough for us to be able to publish in academic journals and for people not to criticise our test collection. Okay? And that's, that's the, important, the important point here. So, how do we, what do we do next? Well, we take that test collection and we look at it. We actually, we actually get a document up that somebody's judged sensitive and say, well, okay, why did they judge that for sensitive? 
Well, of course, this is precisely where my interviews come in. Because I can, having talked to the people who did this, I can say, well, do you know what they did? They probably looked at the classification and looked for the subject matter. They probably looked at who it was from, who it was to. They probably looked at who was writing. They probably looked at who was said to be speaking in the document, because these things are important. Who said what in the document is important. All of these things drive sensitivity. So we can start to look at the document, and we can pull out these things, and these things are called features in our terminology. So... um, is there subjective content? Well, we've got a little programme that can go in. It's just off the shelf. You can get them these sorts of things. It tells you whether a sentence is subjective or not, whatever that means. It doesn't really matter, actually. It just gives us a number. It's a feature. We can count up the discussed entities. We can look for the roles. We can look for things that say, the ambassador spoke to. We can look at things that say, so-and-so spoke to, and so-and-so is a very important person in a particular country. We can, uh, we can say, uh, this... This communication came from country X, town Y. Does that, is that, we, and we can pull those facts out. Now, as facts, these things don't tell us anything. However, when we have the test collection and we look at how statistically those facts co-occur with sensitivity, we can learn that on the balance of probabilities this fact is more likely occurring, is more likely to mean that this document is sensitive. This fact occurring is less likely to mean that it is sensitive. So, for example, the mention of press or media, a lot of documents produced by government are, it's certainly in a foreign context, are rehashes of local press information. By definition, that is not sensitive. It's in the public domain. It cannot be sensitive. It's only sensitive if somebody comments on it. So if you can spot that there's loads of this press stuff in there and there's no other comment, then that's an immediate indication of non-sensitivity. And it's just as important to be able to spot non-sensitivity as it is to spot sensitivity, because you're trying to divide the two um, groups. So, here we go. Some results. Actual results from a classifier taught on our test collection and then tested back against that test collection. And don't worry, we haven't done the naughty thing of testing on the, of, of, of uh, evaluating on the test set. We've done all the right statistical things to make sure that these results are as valid as, they, as valid as we can make them. So, the first line is what's called text, we call text classification. In this, this model, we don't take any extra features. We just take all the words in the document and count how, ma- count how many times they occur in each document. Okay, that produces what's called a vector, a, t- a vector of words. Um, and we then learn the patterns in those vectors of words, learn which words co-occur with sensitivity, which words do not co-occur with sensitivity. And then we produce something that gets it right 63% of the time that says, 63% of the time, gets the answer, is this document sensitive or not sensitive, correct. Now, that's not particularly brilliant, but it's the right side of 50. Okay? It's better than tossing a coin, which is where you want to be. <laughs> Actually, it's equally interesting as if you get, if you get less than 50. Okay? If your, system's, if your system's worse than tossing a coin, that means you found something, but you found the wrong thing but it means just, you know, it's just sort of like a near miss. But in this case, 
it gets us 63% of the way there. Um, we then discovered if we count up how many countries are mentioned in the document, that isn't the actual, just, this isn't the actual countries, it's just the number of countries mentioned, that pushes the number up, pushes it up to 64.5%. That's quite interesting. So that means that's, that's communicating something about sensitivity. Now, for section 27, if we look at where the document came from, its source, and we count up how many verbs are in the document, we get a little bit of a lift, only in the third decimal place, but we get a bit of something, and that's helpful. You notice, if we look for media, we also get a bit of a lift. Now, over in section 40, which is personal data, date of birth and place of birth, those, as you would expect, give us a bit of a lift, and again, media also gives us a bit of a lift. Uh, the interesting one is country count, as to why country count would, would work in both. Um, I think it's got something to do with the fact that um, certain, certain events are happening contemporaneously with our collection that involve a lot of countries and the nature of the interaction with the organisations that's creating the documents that we, we're examining is such that they happen to co- that, 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 that they happen to be personal data in them. So it's, a, it's one of these statistical things. But the point is you don't knock it. Right? It doesn't really matter why the statistics work, as long as they do work. If you can get some rationalisation for that, that's so much the better. However, you can't see them, and that's all that matters for the time being. Um, but over here, this is a slightly different experiment. So we've actually now moved on from that first thing where we guess the features and we use a classifier to classify. We've moved on to something that does something called learning to rank. And that instead of producing just a, a two groups of documents, the sensitive and the not sensitive, we use a slightly different piece of software that uses the same concepts and uses the, some of the same coding but produces a ranked order. So the first document is the most likely to be sensitive and the last document is the least likely to be sensitive. Okay? Now, one of the features of this software is it can measure for itself, this is a bit freaky, it can measure for itself what things are driving the sensitivity decision. So, in this case, we've got a document asking for a vetting request. It's asking for somebody to be vetted and it's giving their name, date of birth, and stuff like that. This is clearly personal data, right? No doubt about it. Section 40, slam dunk, not an issue. So why does the system think it's Section 40? Well, look, it's learned the highest-ranking feature, statistically, is the existence of the code DOB in the text. This document contains a date of birth. The system thinks it's sensitive. It spotted this word, but it would appear that that word has got something to do with these vetting requests, statistically. So it's seen others have liked this, and it's learnt that that word means one of these documents. Vetting, place of birth. Then down here, men, and for some reason, oh, A, and for some reason... Some reason, another, another strange term that I don't recognise. Probably another one of those words that co-occurs. So those are the words, the, ter- the, the text vector that I talked about. These are some of the features. We've got some, 
we've got something here, ah, ah, date of birth. Scores 4.2, whatever that means, but it's better than zero. Place of birth, scores 4.6. So again, this is telling us that not only the existence of those three letters, but this feature actually does a bit more than DOB. It looks for date of birth and similar and, sim and, and other things around that. Okay. So again, it's picking up the same idea. So in other words, we're reinforcing the fact our intuition as to what should be causing sensitivity. The system's telling us that our intuition was broadly speaking correct in this case. This is a mock-up of a user interface that we've started to think about developing. And you'll notice that this user interface is not a million miles away from some of the features in our own friendly discovery user interface. And there's a reason for that. It's because, they, because behind both of them is, this con is a concept of faceted browsing, an exp exploration of a collection. The difference here is that instead of the results being ranked by your query, they're ranked by sensitivity. But you can filter those results by adjusting and opening up and closing these different things. So you can say, just show me the stuff that's section 27. Just show me the stuff that's section 40. You can say, having said section 27 or section 40, show me the stuff that was originally unclassified. Show me the stuff that was originally confidential. Show me the stuff that was originally secret. So you can start to explore the collection. And then we've done something else. What we've actually done is we've used another piece of software. And this takes all 112,000 documents and divides it into 50 buckets. And the 50 buckets are things that are similar. We don't know why they're similar. They're just things that the software thinks are similar. But actually, it turns out that they have some, the software is pretty good. So we have uh, Afghanistan, Taliban, Pakistan, political as the topic. Well, that sounds like it might mean something. That sounds that intuitively there might be a, subject, a set of subjects there that sit together. And in this collection, here we go, we've got some documents that are about that. And this then, so having decided about that, someone could then go in and explore this and judge them sensitive or not sensitive, and the system would begin to learn from those judgments. I'm not going to show you any more of that because it's, 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 it's kind of obvious where it all goes from there. Yes, sorry, the test collection is, is it still sensitive now? The question we ask the judge is not, was it sensitive then? It's, if this record was being produced today as a record to be transferred, would it be considered sensitive under Section 27 or 40? One of the things that this technique allows you to do is it not only... Because it's based on this idea of a test collection, it's based on statistics, okay? As I actually produce judgments in operation, I can examine those judgments and I can make the system relearn to my new pattern of behaviour. So let's imagine the Falklands changes overnight and all of a sudden people start judging Falklands objects as not sensitive when they previously <coughs> judged them as sensitive. Well, we'd, in that situation, we'd probably want to change some parameters in the system. Yes, that's fair enough. 
But equally, the system would very quickly begin to learn that, that the situation has changed, that, that the way it counts its statistics have changed, and it, and it should start to de-emphasise Falkland's objects as being sensitive and re-emphasise something else. Suggesting that certain um, Arabic, uh, Arab nationals um, from, uh, senior Arab nationals from certain countries were in receipt of large amounts of money um, in, in the context of contracts granted by this country is sensitive. Okay? It's, it's precisely a set of documents that were reclosed as a result of revelations um, in the press. And in fact, if you look on the right website, you can still see the documents because they digitised them and have still published them. Okay? Um, so I'm not, I'm not blowing anything by talking about that example. But you can imagine that it would be possible to learn that, that the system would learn that those names would co-occur with documents were sensitive and, would not, and, and other names wouldn't. And in those cases, it's just, it is just the words. It's just the existence of those names. It might be the title. It might be the role. Might be, um, it might be the position in a government that might co-occur with. So, so you, can imagine, uh, you can imagine the mention of the head of MI6, for example. Okay? The head of MI6 signs himself C, doesn't sign, doesn't sign his real name. And until uh, John Scarlett was appointed head of MI6, um, when was that? L- late 2000s, wasn't it? And the name of the head of MI6 was not avowed. Okay? So a document that mentioned the name of the head of MI6 in context would have been highly classified and would have remained sensitive. And, would, and, and the names of previous heads of MI6 I don't think have been disclosed. So even though they're retired and many of them will be dead, it is only speculation that they're heads. So, so if it said the head of MI6 and then a name, the system would learn that that title and a, any name associated with that title was sensitive. That's, that's kind of how the system works. But <clears throat> spotting names, what's a name and what isn't, quite tricky. Um, spotting titles, what's a title, what, when, when is the title used as a, as a euphemism for, for a place? Because you, you talk, these weird things, it it's not, doesn't quite happen with titles, but it happens with, um, uh, you see in press reports, Washington says... And what that means is the American government says. It doesn't mean Washington, it means the American government. But the text says Washington. But in another context, George Washington says. Hmm, is that the same Washington? Is it a different Washington? These things start to get complicated. And there are, there's software out there that, that unpicks all of this. And, and it's software that's in existence, so we don't have to develop it. We just have to... Sort of if you think about what I've proposed, what I've proposed here is a model that says we'll show the reviewer the things we think are most sensitive first. Now there's an implication of that. If they're not going to look at every document, at some point they have to have trusted the system. Okay? Otherwise we haven't solved their problem because they've still got to look at every document. So implicitly there's something going on here that says after a certain point in time you will gain sufficient confidence in the system and this set of documents that the remainder contains no sensitive material. Well, actually, of course, (coughs) no sensitive material is impossible to prove. But what we can do is start to measure the probability that 
it contains no material. And that comes to risk. And it comes to asking the department, how much risk are you prepared to take against the cost? And that comes back to this nuanced thing. So they have to take a view of the... They're going to have to start taking a view of the outside world. They're going to have to start taking an understanding of when it really matters and when it doesn't matter. When you... when And... and, and that will be a sea change. That, that's going to require substantial change in the way in which departments think about this problem. But my contention is if departments are not prepared to take those thoughts and not prepared to walk that path, there is no way out for them. The only conclusion is you have to have a human being look at every document. I can't help you. You might as well start at the beginning and go through to the end. The order you look at them doesn't matter if you've got to look at all of them. You remember I said we wanted to estimate how likely the stuff we hadn't looked at contained sensitive material. Well, one of the ways, in order to do that properly, you have to sample the stuff that you haven't looked at. Okay? It's called stratified sampling. You, you have an ordered set of documents. If you want to estimate what's happening at the low end of your, the long, in the long tail, you have to have a little look in it. You don't have to look at all of it, you have, but you have a little look in it. And so what we're proposing and what we have proposed inside our, our, our conversations thus far is that we'll generate this ranking, this strict ordering, but we won't actually show the user the strict ordering what will show the user is something that's very close to the strict ordering, but it will have some oddments collected from low down the ordering dropped into the list that they will review. Now, because we know where they've come from, those oddments, that enables us to, to sample the ordering and, get a, a, and, and understand how well the system is doing in guessing this ordering and, and, and reconfigure which is very similar to the, which is connected very similarly to the idea of looking at the boundary. So you can imagine looking at the boundary and looking at a few above to check that you've got the answer right, and looking at a few below to check that you've got the answer right. So it's the same. It's the same kind of general idea, but that's spot on. In the same way for the other departments, we have to find open collections of material that can act as a model for the closed material. Now I'm pretty sure we can do that. So for example, I've actually had conversations with one department, who work on very sensitive material. But they said to me, do you know what? If you just get, got a collection of academic material that is in the same subject as us, because, and this is back to context, if an academic says it, it's not sensitive. If we say it, it is. So we could use an academic collection and then judge it as if it was an internal collection, and that would give you all the data you would need. So it's not, it's not impossible, it's just each, we need to divide the world up. We have to divide and conquer. We have to work sort of area by area. And that's why it's going to take us three years. That's why it's not just, oh, we've done this four-month study and, yes, we've shown it works. Oh, right, deploy it now. Because it wouldn't, right? It just simply wouldn't. It would fall flat on its face as soon as we put it into Treasury, right? Yeah, dead in the water. We're absolutely looking at, we will, we will be pulling out all of that stuff and creating our own metadata, which we will then feed in as features into, into the model. There is something about the, 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 these various different concepts that do lend themselves to an element of linked data, but the, 
the actual linked data work that you would need to do that is still in itself quite deep research. The reason for this is that these, the, the, the relationships that you're talking about are actually not absolute relationships. They're, they're, they've, they're, they've got weights on them. They're, very, they're, 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 a, much, they're a more, they're a more um, nuanced thing. They're a weighted graph as opposed to, a, as opposed to a, an ordinary graph. And we do actually have already made some contact with some mathematicians at Southampton University, as it turns out, who are very interested in looking at such weighted graphs and seeing if they can um, generate um, conclusions by running inference across these weighted graphs. Um, We think that that's... What we don't want to do is muddle up the technology in the research. So we are talking to them and we will share that with them but we're, we're, pr- we're proceeding by a, on a slightly different route. If their route bears fruit, then we are pleased. If our boot, route bears fruit, we're pleased. What we don't want to do is, is overcomplicate the, the, the technology that we're using. Because there's an argument, actually, that says you don't have to unpack the graph because, actually, the way these classifiers work internally they've effectively, effectively, quietly encoded the whole graph and the consequences of the graph in the way that they work. And you don't, in other words, it's, you're, just, you're just compressing water. It just squirts out somewhere else. It's not, it's not, you've not gained anything. It's just placed it in a different domain. Now, that's still to be proven, but that's the suspicion amongst some of, our, some of the team that, it, that whilst it would be an interesting piece of research, it might not actually get us any faster to the to the goal. <coughs> Thank you. This talk was recorded live on the 2nd of December 2013 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.